I'm Hillary McClure, Vice President of Multimedia Productions at Cybercrime Magazine. Welcome to Talking Cyber, a cybercrime radio segment where we discuss the latest news and breaking stories of the cyber economy, hackers, intrusions, privacy, security, and much more. Joining us today is Heather Engel, Managing Partner of Strategic Cyber Partners. Heather, welcome. Hey, Hillary. Thanks for having me. Yeah, pleasure as always. And first story for us this episode centers on an article published in TechCrunch about a government watchdog that spent $15,000, not a ton of money, to crack a federal agency's passwords in minutes. And the watchdog published a scathing rebuke of the Department of the Interior's cybersecurity posture, finding that thousands of employee users' accounts were easily hacked thanks to the department's security policies that allowed easily guessable passwords like, quote unquote, password 1234. So Heather, can you take us further through this story and why the security policies at federal agencies are allowing passwords such as password 1234? Yeah, well, to start off, technically, these shouldn't have been allowed. This is something that the government has had requirements for its own agencies, and it's in the last five or six years has really cracked down on even companies that do business with the Department of Defense, having strong policies on passwords, forcing them to use multi-factor authentication. So part of the reason that this is a story, right, is that this is the government saying, do as I say, not as I do. What the story found was, as you said, the Department of the Interior had a password cracking tool and system run against their systems. And so let's talk about that for a second, right? What normally will happen is when you have a password, when you type it in, it's in what's known as clear text. When it's stored in the system, it's hashed, which basically means that it's encrypted so that it's harder to read. And the way this worked was the organization dumped out passwords And they waited for them to expire, which there was a 90-day expiration policy, so that then within 90 days, all those users would have had to have changed their passwords to something else. And then what they did was they cracked or they used tools to crack the password hashes that they had dumped out. And what was really interesting is there's actually a chart in the report that's available online. You can read the whole report. It's, It's very interesting. Where they had the top 10 most reused passwords. So you mentioned password 1234, 478 accounts were using that password. And then there were another 150 who were using it without a dash, but added an exclamation point. And so the story here is really that the government wasn't enforcing password complexity rules. And this is pretty easy to do. If you're using a Microsoft, you know, Active Directory type of infrastructure, it's turning these features on and forcing users to choose passwords that are more complex. And you you can set things like the password length and how many characters need to be changed when you change a password. So if my password were 1234, I may not want to just change it to password 2345, right? I can set the system to change the password a lot. And so those are some of the things here that really showed up as being almost egregious, right? And the other piece of it is that many of the accounts that were compromised where the password was cracked were accounts that had elevated privileges, meaning they had access to the security infrastructure or they had access to files and systems and databases 
that required elevated privileges. And so when we look at securing a system, we typically look at the confidentiality of data, which means is data that shouldn't be out there protected. We look at the integrity of data, which means does that data have the ability to be changed to something that's not correct? Integrity just means we want our data to be correct. And is that data available when we need it? And really all three of those could have potentially been violated here because passwords are really in this organization functioning as the gateway to getting into the system. They weren't using multi-factor authentication, which requires, you know, we know that is two-factor. It basically means something you know, something you have, and something you are, and you would use two out of the three of those versus just a username and password, which would be something that you know. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So I'm glad you took us through that. And I guess, what were the recommendations for ways to move forward? Yeah, well, obviously, one of the biggest ones and and the number one recommendation was implement multi-factor authentication. This is something that's been required in most government agencies for years. It's required of companies that are doing business with the government and handling government information. So that's going to be a big one, right? Implementing multi-factor authentication and actually tracking the implementation of MFA as it rolls out across the organization. Some of the other recommendations we talked a little bit about, so you can revise those password complexity rules and account management policies. You know, one of the other things that they found were there were some accounts that were not in use. And you look at the age of the account, you can see when it was last logged in. And some of the accounts were older than what the policy had set. So one of the recommendations there was force users to have more complex passwords, implement some account management policies to take those accounts that aren't being used and make sure that they're disabled, put some controls in place to monitor and limit commonly used passwords and passphrases like password one, two, three, four prioritizing the inventory and monitoring and enforcement of these controls. You know, one of the things is we can put all these rules and regulations in place, but if we don't have a system for monitoring the enforcement, that makes it a little bit more difficult to say that it's actually reducing the risk. Another thing that they found was that there were several related accounts using the same password. So, you know, for example, if I have an account with elevated privileges, And then I have a regular account that I use for things like email and research on the internet. I shouldn't have the same password or passphrase for those two accounts. They should be different. And one of the things they found was that in many cases, the same password was being used across multiple accounts and there were shared accounts and things like that. So those were some of the main recommendations, obviously. And that's good advice for any organization, making sure that your password complexity is there, making sure that you're managing accounts that you're disabling or taking things offline that aren't necessary. Just really, these are basic security best practices that weren't being followed. You're listening to Talking Cyber. I'm your host, Hillary McClure. Joining me today is Heather Engel, Managing Partner at Strategic Cyber Partners. Heather, the next story for us is one that closed 2022 with a bang, and a bang in the amount of over half a billion dollars to be exact. Ars Technica reported at the end of December how Epic Games is paying that aforementioned amount to settle two FTC complaints regarding the company's use of children's private information and its use of dark patterns to encourage accidental in-game purchases. So 
Heather, these are some of the largest penalties the FTC has ever imposed. So can you take us through this story further in detail, as well as weighing in on some of the unbelievable violations of COPPA that Epic Games implemented? So COPPA is something that has been in place since 1998, and it was designed to protect children on the internet. And obviously, it's been a long time. And one of the criticisms of COPPA is that it doesn't account for social media networks. It doesn't account for the way that things have changed since it was first implemented. But the FTC was able to bring suit against Epic Games. Specifically, we're talking about Fortnite, which I don't know. My kids play Fortnite. I know a lot of kids and adults too that are on that game. And so the suit was brought about under COPPA, talking about the ways that Epic really failed to identify and protect children. When you are collecting information from kids, COPPA requires that you give parents direct notice of the information practices. And there are several ways that parents have to allow, it's called verifiable consent. There are several ways that companies are required to obtain verifiable consent from parents before collecting personal information from their kids. Well, you know, one of the criticisms there is that some of the acceptable methods are valid, but there are one or two that really provide what I would consider to be a big loophole, right? So if you have a child online using a credit card or a debit card that provides notice of the transactions to the account holder, that's considered a form of verifiable consent. And I can tell you, I know firsthand many, many kids who get a hold of a parent's credit card. Sometimes they'll just take it out of the wallet, right? And put it in the system without the parent ever realizing. And the next thing they know, you know, this happened to a friend of mine, they had $600 worth of charges from a game. Oh no. But under COPPA, that qualifies as verifiable consent for the parent, right? So there are other things to do. The parent might call a toll-free number. They might provide a copy of a form of government-issued ID. But you know, if you're a parent and you're allowing your child to get onto a game, you're probably not going to call a toll-free number and sit on hold to verify this. You're going to do it the easiest way possible, which unfortunately is also easy without parental consent. So that was some of the problems with COPPA. But you know, in this case, we have Epic not only violating some of those, but talking about dark patterns. And these are things that companies use to really make users opt out of things versus opting in in the first place. And so some of the things that you know they did in this article, it talks about how they automatically stored the credit card information for anyone with a single purchase they didn't require any CVV, which is you know the number off the back of your credit card that they ask you to revalidate. That made it easy for kids to make pur purchases without their parents' consent. They also did some things with purchasing where the purchase button didn't give any kind of confirmation. So if you hit purchase, it just automatically went through and it didn't say, are you sure? Oh, wow. You know, here's your final total. So things like that really are what we would consider to be a dark pattern. That's something where it makes it almost too easy for kids to purchase online without their parents' consent. Another thing that was mentioned in the article was the undo purchase. So you know, you purchase something, it goes through, you should be able to undo that purchase. And they made that button very hard to find. 
which led to an increase, right, in credit card charges. So there were a lot of things here. And in the article, it mentions that according to the investigation, Epic was well aware of what they were doing. They wanted, obviously, kids to be playing this game. They want them to purchase as many things as they can, because that's how they're making money. But again, it really did violate the intent and the spirit of COPPA, you know, regardless of what you want to say about how outdated COPPA is. Certainly. And do you think, Heather, this is going to, I mean, these are huge fines. So Epic will pay $275 million to the U.S. Treasury to settle the COPPA complaint. And then the additional $245 million will be paid for the dark patterns complaint and will be used to refund affected customers. Do, do you think that this is going to put a new line in the sand for online gaming that children are involved in? And do you think this will change anything moving forward? Well, I think anytime you have a fine that's this large, it definitely sends a message. But, you know, as we mentioned, COP has been around since 1998. And I think what we're going to see really start to shift this industry as well is just some of the state by state privacy regulations that are starting to come around. You know, the California Consumer Privacy Protection Act, the GDPR is another one. If you've got data on European consumers, which I think most gaming companies do. That puts another level of regulation on what you can do with data. And again, that's not specific to children, but I think that will start to shift the industry. We're just seeing across the industry a much greater emphasis now on privacy and personal data and what companies are allowed to do with it and what type of control consumers have over it. So I think that beyond just the message sent by the fine, you know, regulation is really starting to come into play. And that's changing the way that a lot of these gaming companies do business anyway. Well, Heather, thank you so much for joining us again on Talking Cyber and taking us through these two stories. These were really fascinating for this episode. So thank you for taking the time. Absolutely. Always a pleasure to talk with you, Hillary. Yes, likewise. I'm Hillary McClure, Vice President of Multimedia Productions at Cybercrime Magazine. Talking Cyber is a cybercrime radio segment that discusses the latest news and breaking stories of the cyber economy, hackers, intrusions, privacy, security, and much more. To keep up with the latest security and privacy news updated daily, visit us at cybercrimewire.com.